If you've got a Bible, I want to uh, ask you to find Job chapter 7. Uh, if you're in an old school paper Bible, which are still really effective, you can uh, flip about to the middle and go to your left just a little bit. And um, while you're doing that, uh, I want to catch us up together a little bit. We're in a series called It Doesn't Seem Like Love for February and March, where we're going to the book of Job. And through the course of this series, as a church, uh, we want to be doing a few things together. Number one is to be memorizing Job 19.25. It's over there on the chalkboard. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, he will stand on the dust. And each week, we're thinking about how those words of Job in the middle of the book uh, change the way that we view the hard times and the things in our life that don't seem, uh, that make it seem like God doesn't love us. Uh, that's one. Number two is uh, we're, we're just taking a, a mental check to say we're not going to blame. We're not going to blame God. We're not going to blame other people. We're just going to sit in these really hard questions that the book of Job brings up. And last but not least, uh, we're challenging one another to be in community, to be transparent in groups as we answer some tough questions in those as well. So those are the three things. And um, I, last week, uh, I just need to be honest with you. I, I left with a sour taste in my mouth, and I preached the sermon. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But Job chapter three, where we were when Job asked the question, "Why didn't I die?" And it is that is tough sledding. It is tough sledding, and um, we stripped that question of Job's back to our need to answer questions about our, our identity. Who are we? How did we begin? And none of us ultimately can answer why our lives have been preserved. Why, why, why are we here? But we can say with confidence that we were created by God for life. And, and that was really what we, we tried to get at. We were challenged to bring our life into, into congruence, uh, to, to think about not all these sections of our life, but one life that God has called us to live. And to think about how fragmented our lives are and consider how unified they can be when we give ourselves to the Lord. So that was Job chapter 3. And it revealed Job's first words since losing his livelihood, his animals, his barns, his children, his servants, having his wife shame his faith, and having his entire body covered in boils. That's a bad day. And Job 3 was his first words where he expressed this small circle of friends, his exhaustion in trying to simply live. And so then in chapters 4 and 5, one of those friends, a friend named Eliphaz, responds. And Eliphaz essentially says, whoa, 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 easy there, buddy. I think you're a little tired, <laughs> right? I think, I think you need to sit down, Job. I mean, Job, have you really ever heard, he begins to question him, have you ever really heard of somebody who has died and still been innocent? And then he, he kind of makes this assumption, I'm thinking that you've done something to make God angry. Have you ever experienced that? You go through something really hard and a friend comes to you and they say, hold, hold on. You must have done something wrong. Like, if God's doing this in your life, you must have done something wrong. Eliphaz offers what feels like one side of the truth. Job, you know that all of us humans are sinners, and that's true, right? That, that part's true. But then he jumps to this conclusion. You must have done something wrong for all these bad things to happen. So he says, why don't you just go to God and tell him you messed up, and I'm sure he'll make everything right again. That's kind of Eliphaz's suggestion. So Job begins his response to Eliphaz in chapter 6, and it's along these lines, dude, I mean, dude, if you really understood, if you could empathize just a little, if you could catch a glimpse of the grief that I'm experiencing right now, 
then maybe you'd understand. And Job continues to, to process his emotions out loud after he's experienced this severe loss and suffering. And he continues to struggle to identify what he's done wrong. He begins to search himself, as Eliphaz suggests. Maybe there really is something, but he can't find it. And we turn to chapter 7, where Job dives deep into more hard questions. Because as he realizes, I, don't, I can't identify something that I've done wrong, it causes him to question his purpose in life entirely. So if you would, follow along with me either in your Bible or up on the screen. Job chapter 7. Isn't each person consigned to forced labor on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired worker? Like a slave, he longs for shade. Like a hired worker, he waits for his pay. So I've been made to inherit months of futility, and troubled nights have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, when will I get up? But the evening drags on endlessly, and I toss and I turn until dawn. My flesh is clothed with maggots and encrusted with dirt. My skin forms scabs and then oozes. My days pass more swiftly than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but a breath. My eye will never see again anything good. The eye of anyone who looks on me will no longer see me. Your eyes will look for me, but I will be gone. As a cloud fades away and vanishes, so the one who goes down to Sheol will never rise again. He will never return to his house. His hometown will no longer remember him. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you keep me under guard? When I say my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling death rather than life in this body. I give up. I will not live forever. Leave me alone. For my days are a breath. What is a mere human that you think so highly of him and pay so much attention to him? You inspect him every morning and put him to the test every moment. Will you ever look away from me or leave me alone long enough to swallow? If I've sinned, what have I done to you, watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target so that I have become a burden to you? Why not forgive my sin and pardon my iniquity? For soon I will lie down in the grave. You will eagerly seek me, but I will be gone. Father, we thank you for your word. And when we read things like this, it's a, it's a weird range of emotions. And one way we can identify with Job's struggle in this world, and we just, man, we, we just, we want to cry out those same things. At other times, we, it, it causes us to, to question, uh, to, to really wonder where God is and what he's doing in our life. And so, God, we just pray that as we open your word this morning, as we consider Job's story and ours and, and, and the truth of who you are, we pray that you would use your spirit to, to give us great clarity about our purpose in life. We pray, God, that you would change us in the moments by your word, by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We get sucked into thinking we're the target of life's tornadoes. Have you ever wondered... If God was out to get you, Magnolia, two weeks in a row she's making the sermon. <clears throat> Magnolia typically is a child that uh, wants to be played with and given attention to all the time. And if you don't give her that attention, she is like a tornado. But yesterday there was a strange moment in our house. She'd been doing her typical tornado things and Caitlin and I were sitting on the couch, and she had climbed up in a chair at the kitchen table, 
And I look over, and she's got an ink pen and a piece of paper. And I hear the pen on the table. I said, Magnolia, what are you doing? No help me. No help me. No help me, Daddy. Okay. And that was her sign, that she was doing something that she didn't want me to be involved in. Don't help me, Daddy. The complete opposite of what it usually is. How do we get to that point? How did Job get to that point in chapter 7 where he says, Why have you made me your target? I'd rather you just not pay attention to me, God. Don't help me. Just take your eyes off of me and let me be me for just a minute. How do we get to that point? And how did Job get to that point? Chapter 7, I think, shows us this, this spiral, this, uh, this, this downward motion that Job goes through, this train of thought that, that caused him to eventually lose sight of his purpose as a human being. Last week we talked about our origin and how we were created for life, but just being created for life doesn't tell us what our purpose is. What is the purpose of that life? So Job begins the chapter and he, he questions his work. He says in verses 1 and 2, Isn't each person consigned to forced labor on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired worker? Like a slave, he longs for shade. Like a hired worker, he waits for his pay. If you think about Job's story, Job had been working all of his life to build up his flocks and his herds. He, he'd built this empire, really. And in a moment, it was all gone. It caused him to question the purpose of his work. Like, I've worked so hard, and for what? And as he begins to have that question, he, he follows that train of thought, and, and then he has this reality check. In verse 7, he says, remember that my life is, is but a breath. My life is but a breath. When we face hard times, we realize how short and how precious life really is. When we hear about devastating things uh, like the helicopter crash that, that took Kobe and Gianna Bryant's life and, and others, we we realize how, how precious life is. There's this reality check when things are hard, that, that life is real and life is short. And as Job begins to process that, he says, well, is my work, like, what's the purpose of my life and my work? Oh, man, life is really short. And then he makes this, this shift in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, I give up. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. And he moves into this, this idea of indulgence. Because when we realize that time is limited, we think, well, I might as well pursue my desires. I might as well pursue what I want. And then as we begin to do that, we get to the point in verse 20 where we see ourselves as the victim. Why have you made me your target? So I've become a burden to you. When I pursued the things that I wanted, right, like there was no meaning or purpose there either. And it's at this point that Job wonders, God, why do you care so much? Why have you made me your target? What does that look like for us? What does that look like for you? What does our spiral look like? Perhaps we're in a season where it seems like disasters are piling up one on another on another on another. It's one thing after the next after the next. And we begin to look around and we feel like we're never going to get ahead. That may be a phrase that has been passed around your house. You look around and you feel like the laundry will never be caught up. The house will never get to the state that you want it to be. You begin to think, I'll never have enough to actually retire. I'm not going to be able to, to do enough to get into the college that I want to go to. 
We look around, and as a church, we even think about the lostness in Shelby County, and we think, you know what, no matter how much we do here at CCC, people are still going to be lost in Shelbyville. No matter how many Love Shelbyville days we have, people will still struggle with addiction or hunger or poverty. And we begin to question, just like Job did, if the work we do doesn't keep us from experiencing hardship, then what's the point? If all the hard work that we put in to our lives doesn't actually protect us from anything, then what is the point? Goodness, we think. Life is short. I don't have much time to do the things I want to do. And then anxiety sets in and, and fear of missing out or fear of better options accompanies that. And there's this deep reality check in our spirit. Why am I here? What's my purpose? And you think, you know what? If I'm not going to get there, if I'm not going to hit my goal, if I'm not going to achieve the status or the level or, or the results that I wanted, if I don't have time to accomplish those things that I set out to do with my life, I might as well enjoy it. Might as well enjoy it. Live it up. Life is short. Solomon described this experience in Ecclesiastes 2, 10 and 11. He says, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I didn't refuse myself any pleasure for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. And when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I would labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And then we think, nothing to be gained. God, you must not really love me. If you did, I mean... It's just, it doesn't seem like love. Why are you targeting me, God? I feel more like the victim of a cruel existence. Just leave me alone and let me do what I want. I'm going to enjoy what little time I have left. I'm going to live life for me. So easy to get there. So easy to get stuck in that spiral. We can be at different points in the spiral. Maybe questioning the purpose of our, our lives and, and our work. Maybe we're in a deep reality check that life is short. Maybe we're in a season of indulgence where we're just chasing whatever we want. Maybe we feel like the victim and that God doesn't really love us. I don't know your story today, but I'm excited that you're here with us because as we lean into this together, we're going to find that at the bottom of that spiral, there's a truth about the creator of the universe. There's the truth about him that reminds us that he gives us our purpose. And it's much greater than what we could have given to ourselves. Anybody ever seen the movie Twister? Came out in like 1996. A little old school. <clears throat> I've, wa I've only watched the cable version, so if there's something that I... I Forgive me if I'm, I shouldn't be using this reference. But the movie Twister, right? It's all about tornadoes. And it opens with a father trying to hold the cellar door on. They're, they're going through a tornado, and he rushes his family into the cellar. He, he sees that the door is going to come loose, and so he goes over and he tries to hold the cellar door shut. And it's, like, terribly tragic because this tornado comes, rips the door off, and out flies their dad, Right? gone forever. The little girl, Meg Ryan, of course, and she becomes this tornado chaser. 
right? His daughter ends up giving her life to trying to collect data from tornadoes in order to save people's lives. And there's all this drama and that, you know, at the end, we, we make it, we get there. But this illustration of a tornado and, and getting the data from the center, from the eye of the storm is applicable today. Because when we face the storms of life or when we get stuck in this spiral of losing our purpose, when we're not really sure why we're here, we're tempted to run. We're tempted to think that we can outrun the storm. We're tempted to think that we can outlast it, that we can hold the door on the cellar. We tell ourselves that we will survive. We'll get through it. And while we're doing all those things, our purpose is lost in running from our problems rather than our purpose being the thing that helps us face our problems. We look at the problems and we think we'll find our purpose when in reality we have our purpose and it helps us face our problems. The truth is that in the middle of the storm, we get the data that we need. The data that can not only save our lives, but the lives of all those we meet. Because at the end... At the end of the storms in our life, whether we are standing or not, he will be standing on the dust. Job 19.25 I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, he will stand on the dust. You know, this, this book of Job is so interesting because there's this huge middle section, right? We, we talked about the first two chapters. It's like his story. And then it opens up for a lot of chapters, 20-plus chapters, uh, where there's this huge section and conversation that's mostly misapplied theology. What I mean by that is Job's friends take truth about God, and they apply them in the completely wrong way to Job's situation. And so if you're reading the book of Job, and, and you're just going a couple chapters at a time, it can be really confusing to figure out what the truth really is. You're like, yeah, we all are sinners. And then, then you know, his friend Eliphaz is like, and that must mean that, you know, all these bad things are a result of that. And Job's like, what, what? That, that doesn't seem to make any sense. And so in the middle of this, this huge section where there's all this misapplied stuff, this verse, Job 19.25, right in the middle of the book, holding this book and our series together becomes even more incredible. Because in the middle of the book, in the middle of this muddled conversation, Job states with great clarity, but I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the dust. So last week, we talked about the implication of Jesus, our Redeemer, being alive. But today, I want us to think about this last phrase, he will stand on the dust. In one sense, we we might quickly think about the dust settling after the storm. When this hard time is over, when we get out of the season, if we can just get through this, Jesus will still be alive. He'll still be on the throne. He'll still be standing on the dust. And that's true, but it's, it's so much bigger than that. This is a statement not only about God's eternal nature, but his authority over us as the, as the crown jewel of his creation. We talked last week about how he created us in his image. And then we know about the fall, right? Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And we read this in Genesis 3.19. Genesis 3.19, God is speaking Adam and Eve, and he says, You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you are taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20 affirms this. This wasn't just God being angry. He says in Ecclesiastes 3.20, All are going to the same place. All come from dust, and all return to dust. Jesus is our Redeemer who is living, and at the end, he will stand on the dust, and we are the dust. 
Jesus then exists outside of our existence. He was there when mankind was created from dust, and at the end, he will stand on the dust to which your physical bodies have returned. And so now you have a choice. You and I, we have a choice. You either spend time searching for your purpose or serving your purpose. You either spend time searching for your purpose or serving your purpose. And that brings us back to Job's question. God, why have you made me your target? I don't know. If you're going through an incredibly hard time and you feel like God has targeted you and he's calling you out, I don't know why you're going through that season. But I know that my Redeemer lives and at the end, he will stand on the dust. He will still exist. His purpose will still be the purpose. He will still be the authority. And if that's true, the greatest thing that you can give your life to is something that serves his purpose. Something that will last not only after you die, but will last forever because at the end, he will be standing on the dust. It's only because of Jesus, only because of him, that the pain that you and I walk through can become a part of our purpose. George Mueller is one of my favorite people uh, in, in history. George Mueller cared for 10,024 orphans during his life. That's mind-blowing. Almost as many people as are in the, the city limits of Shelbyville, George Mueller cared for that many orphans. And it all started, his first step into orphan care was preparing his home to house 30 girls. That's a saint. I don't care, like, that is a saint right there. Throughout the course of his life, he established 117 schools that educated more than 120,000 students. He was an incredible man. It's impossible to know how many of those kids came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior as they came through an orphanage or a school that George Mueller worked hard to develop. And the gospel was at the center of it all. Each child learning as an orphan that Jesus loved them and had adopted them into God's family. If that wasn't enough, at age 70, he began a 17-year mission trip that took him to over 35 countries to share Jesus. So lest you think it's too late in life, George Mueller set out at 70 and went to 30, more than 35 countries to share Jesus. You know, we share the highlights of people's story like George Mueller, but we often don't talk about the other parts. At age 14, George Mueller himself lost his mother. He lost his mother. The pain that he alleviated for so many as orphans was the exact pain that he had once experienced himself. At age 16, he was thrown in jail because he was not paying his bills as a 16-year-old. At age 20, he went to a school to be a preacher, not because he loved Jesus, but because he saw it as a way to make a good living. The Lord radically changed his life during an in-home Bible study, and the rest is history. So many people in our world serve great purposes we look at their lives sometimes with envy, but we often forget that their purpose was found in the midst of their pain. George Mueller said this, my business is with all my might to serve my own generation. In doing so, I shall best serve the next generation, should the Lord Jesus tarry. The longer I live, the more I am enabled to realize that I have but one life to live on this earth and that this one life is but a brief life 
for sowing in comparison with eternity for reaping. Isn't that so good? That this one brief life we have, if we'll just give it to serving the Lord's purpose, we will find great purpose, not only in this life, but then we will reap for an eternity the blessings of being with the Lord Jesus. So today, I want to challenge you and challenge me to not just survive the madness of life, but to serve your maker. Serve your maker. And as you serve your maker, the madness just becomes a part of the purpose. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. The writer of Ecclesiastes encourages, there's an urgency to just doing what's in front of you. Do whatever your hands find to do. Paul affirms the same idea in Colossians 3, 23 and 24 when he says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you'll receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. So I want to ask you to do a mental audit with me for just a second. I want you to to answer this question. What, What do you do? It's a question that we get asked often. What do, what do you do? What do you answer in your head when I ask you that? What do you do? All right, you got it? Now I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I do what I do for the Lord? Do I do what I do for the Lord? Or do I do what I do for other people so that they'll see me achieving Do I do what I do for the Lord or do I do what I do for me to make myself feel better? To try and find purpose by myself? Do you do what you do for the Lord? While you consider that and while prayerfully the Spirit stirs up in us our purpose given to us by the Lord, I want to share with you the beauty of how God works when we just do what the Lord has put in front of us. You know, maybe your thing isn't that. Maybe like George Mueller, the Lord has put pain in your story that allows you to to be mindful of how you can care for other people really well, maybe orphans specifically. We have a couple of tangible options for that at Christ Community right now. Our Honduras trip, man, it started with a heart for orphans. And that ministry has blossomed into so many other things, much like George Mueller's has. There's a few more spots on that team, and Dave Sullivan or Kenny Mattingly, they can hook you up with that uh, as as we get going on that. There's another really cool thing that's coming. I'm so excited to hear what God ends up doing with this, but there's an incredible ministry uh, that's trying to come to Kentucky, and leaders at Christ Community have been asked to, to help do this. It's called Families Count. And we're learning more about it each day. But the idea is that uh, through the foster care system, churches are equipped and given tools to walk with the families of those who have had their children placed in foster care. So often we talk about the orphans. So often we talk about supporting those who are fostering. Too often we forget the families that those children come from. Families count. Today we don't know where that ministry is going. We're still learning. But I do want to invite you, if you'd like to hear more about that or learn more about how you could be a part, I'm going to ask you to just text um, at FAMS count, F-A-M-S count, to 81010, and that'll keep you in a communication loop as we continue to see how that ministry evolves.
Maybe the Lord has used part of your story to prepare you for something like that. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your strength. Do with all your strength. Do things for the Lord by doing what's in front of you like the Lord would do it. You know, so often we get stuck on the question, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But that's the wrong question. The question isn't what are you supposed to do. It's how are you going to do what's already in front of you. Do it like Jesus would. Make lattes. Sell products. Do construction. Teach kids. Manage your team. Raise your kids. Write policies. Cook food. Balance budgets. And as you're doing those things, ask, how would Jesus do this? Jesus, what would you do in this moment right here? How would you serve this coffee? How would you engage this person that I'm getting ready to sell this product to? And as we do that, man, the Lord is so good. The Lord is so good. You know, when we begin to do that, the question then shifts one more time from how to, well, where should I do this? For many of us, man, the Lord has placed us in Shelbyville, Shelby County, and, and like that's where he's got us, and we're supposed to do it right here. I was so encouraged this week. I sent a text, I began this text conversation with, with one of uh, our members, and uh, man, he, he, he's a hard worker, works with his hands day in, day out. And we were just talking about inviting people to church, and I was so encouraged by the spirit he always carries into that. And he shared with me, he said, you know, Blake, he said, it's my honor. And he said, in fact, it's a goal for me to invite 10 people to church every week. He said, most of them don't come. But my goal is to invite 10 people to church every week. I thought, man, that's not for everybody, but I am so glad it's for him. I'm so glad that he just said, whatever my hands find to do, I'm going to do with all my strength. And I love that he's become a missionary right here. But man, for some of us, I have no doubt that God's called us to be a missionary there. We don't know what it looks like, but the Lord has given us a skill, a gift that translates to other cultures other countries, other communities that need to hear about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said, no man ever served God by doing things tomorrow. Thanks for that, Spurgeon. No man ever served God by doing things tomorrow. And so as you've done that audit in your mind this morning, what do you do? Do you do what you do for the Lord? I just want to begin to to challenge you, to challenge us, to think about, man, if I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and I know I'm, I'm doing it where I'm supposed to be doing it, am I doing it like Jesus would? Am I doing it with an urgency to serve the Lord and serve the people that are around me every day? And if not, I need to get to that place. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be one of Jesus' disciples, experiencing the chaos of the week leading up to Christ's death on the cross. Will you go there with me for a minute? Jude walks out of the Last Supper. Awkward. Jesus tells them they're going to all walk away from him. They get out to the garden and Peter cuts a guy's ear off. That's chaos. Imagine how unsettling it must have been 
Jesus has called these guys to follow him, to leave their lives behind and follow him. Right? We, we say all the time in a cheerful voice, you know, you were fishermen and now I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But imagine being those fishers of men in the moment where everything seems to be crumbling. Jesus had given them new purpose in life. Stop fishing, start following me. And now that seemed to be blowing up in their faces. God, why are you targeting us? Like, why did you ever call me out upon the water? Why did you ever call me out of the water? And like, what are you, like, couldn't you have just asked somebody else, why, why did you do this to me? You blew up my life, and for what? And we fast forward to after the resurrection. Everything that Jesus said came true. He came back to life. The Redeemer lives. Peter has denied him. And that same Peter, who has denied Christ, is searching for his purpose. Jesus, you called me, but, but then everything seemed to change. And I really don't know why I'm here. I, like, how are you going to use me? I denied you. And in his search for purpose, he goes to the one thing that he knows how to do really, really well. Fishing. Peter goes fishing. In John 21, we read about Peter and a few of the men going fishing. It says they have no luck all night. And I love what it says in John 21, verse 4. It says, when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. It was made of dust. He stood on the shore. The disciples didn't know it was Jesus. As the story goes, Jesus calls out to them. He tells them to try the other side of the boat. Their nets are filled. Peter recognizes who it is. He runs into the water and runs to meet Jesus, and they bring the fish in. Verse 12. <laughs> Jesus is just super cash. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. And at that point, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. In that moment, everything had changed. They'd went from not recognizing him to knowing exactly who it was. And he had invited them to share in breakfast. Come have breakfast. He serves them after this, just like he did at that last supper. Jesus is reminding them that their purpose is the same as the day that he called them. And I'm here to serve you. You know, for some of you this morning, as we respond, we're going to take part in communion. And communion is a reminder that Christ serves you this meal. He served you by offering himself his body and his blood to pay for your sins. Come have breakfast. Breakfast is on Jesus. He has overcome all the things in your life so that you could serve him that's your purpose. As we do that this morning, we recognize that some of you are going through storms. We just want to invite you to, to come and pray with us. And as we pray together, we're not going to fix your storms because we really don't know how, but we're going to stand with you and, and, and say with you, Job 19.25, that it, He's going to be on the other side. He's going to be standing on the dust at the end. And he promises, 
He promises over and over again in Scripture that He loves you and He has a purpose and a plan for your life. You know, for some of you today, that invitation from Jesus to come have breakfast is an invitation into baptism. You know, baptism is not what saves you, but it is the outward affirmation of what you already know to be inwardly true, that Jesus has saved you by His grace. It's that invitation to to come and be with Him, to sit with Him, and to give your life in serving His purpose. If that's you today, I'd ask that you come. I'll be in the back, and we'd love to talk about the details of that, whether that's today or next Sunday or whenever. But don't, don't wait on that. Just don't wait. Step into the water with Jesus. You know, for some of you, you're new with us today or you've, you've been with us just a few times. And, and we want to have that kind of relationship with you that Jesus has with Peter where he just says, come have breakfast. Like, let's just sit around the fire and catch up. If that's you today, there's communication cards on the back in the, by the offering cans. And we'd ask you just fill those out, put in the offering can right there, and, and we'll, we'll start building a relationship with you this week. But maybe none of those things are necessarily you this morning. Maybe you're a little more like Peter. Because you see, Jesus, even as he invites them to breakfast, he knows that Peter needed more. Peter still had questions about his place. He still had questions about his role on the team. He still had questions about his purpose. Those questions about why he was here and what he was supposed to do ran really, really deep. And so after breakfast, Jesus takes Peter aside and and three times he asks him, do you love me? Peter says, yes. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. That's your purpose. Feed my sheep. He's saying, since I've served you, Peter, serve me. Don't just survive the madness. Serve your maker. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. And then at the end of that conversation, he reaffirms the same calling that he put on Peter's life several years earlier. Follow me. Just follow me. Today, maybe the Lord has reminded you of your real purpose in the work that you do. And if that's you, man, return to work tomorrow with new life and new urgency to serve the Lord in it. Find Jesus in everything you do. Just make people, like, I don't know, make them know that Jesus is shining through your life. But for some of you, you're like Peter, and, and maybe today the Lord is calling you to, to something more, and you don't know what that is. But he's saying to you, feed my sheep. He's calling you to, to ministry of some kind. And if that's you, man, you don't, you don't have to know what it looks like. I don't know, you might see yourself as a church planner, as a missionary. You might see yourself as a worship leader or a youth leader or some other kind of church leadership. You don't have to know the specifics But if the Lord is calling you, I want to ask you to to come and share that with us in the back this morning. And we'd love to just celebrate with that with you and walk with you as the Lord clarifies your calling and and reveals more about that to you. Yes, we are missionaries in the here and in the now. But there are certainly times when the Lord, just like he did with Peter, calls us to more. And so we want to make that same invitation to you this morning. Come have breakfast. Follow Jesus. Let's serve our maker. You know, the Lord has targeted you because he loves you and he has a plan for your life. And so today, I just invite you to step out of your storm and step into the plan that God has 
as we respond this morning. Let me pray for us as the band comes and as we respond together. Jesus, thank you for redeeming our lives. Thank you for being alive. But more than that, thank you for being the authority. Thank you for, thank you for standing on the dust at the end of all these things so that we don't have to try and be our own authority, but that we can just love, like we can just trust you. And yet that's so hard for us. And so, Father, I pray that through your spirit, through your word today, you would help us to trust you. Whatever it is we need to trust you with. Maybe we're trusting you for the very first time with our salvation. We're saying we place our life in your hands. Maybe we're trusting you to take the step towards baptism. Maybe we're taking you to trusting you to, as we take a step towards ministry. Maybe we're trusting you to help us be missionaries in our everyday lives. Whatever it is, Lord, man, help us to trust you more. To just come to you with open arms, ready to be filled by who you are and how you love us. We're so grateful for you, Lord. Thank you for targeting us. Help us to stand as we walk with you together. In Jesus' name, amen.